Hello, late October Halloween listeners. I'm going to do something not spooky. I'm going to share the idea of you getting a great website with Squarespace, right? That's the least scary thing there is, having a great website online. I agree. Be unscared by their launching of your passion project. Be unterrified by their showcasing of your work or selling products of any kind. Use their beautiful templates, use their 24-7 award-winning customer support, and put yourself on the internet. Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also feeling spooky. You know, the end of October is pumpkin spiced and skeleton decorated and ghost filled, you know, Halloween, you get it. And since I work at Cracked, I work with a New York Times bestselling author of many books, many of which have a strong horror element. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that exciting? Yes, to both questions. So, of course, I am rigging in the holiday Halloween season, uh, the holiday season. Is that a fun term for it? Probably not. Either way, I am joined by Jason Pargin. And our topic today is archaeological discoveries scarier than any horror movie. One more time, that is archaeological discoveries scarier than any horror movie. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's stories of archaeologists in real life. Uh, they go digging, uh, you know, they go spelunking, they go pawing through the past with their, their big meaty science hands, you know, and they end up finding terrifying stuff. That's, that's what it is. So I think the premise is obvious. I also hope it's obvious that we're approaching this from a, a perspective of it mostly being astonishing. And then we, we find humor along the way, but we are, we are not here to laugh at past cultures, uh, which is a thing you can do if you aren't careful and you're talking about, you know, finds from the past and archaeology and, and discoveries of how humans used to live. The main thing here is that being alive is more interesting than people think it is because the past ancient history and recent history was just an absolute horror show, just a, a carnival of horrifying things. And we don't often think of it that way. We think of like a very clean king or Roman in a toga doing something impressive, you know, but there were all these other just nightmares going on and they have been dug up by people who are doing their regular archaeologist job. So that's the show today. It also, uh, this, is, this is a little silly, but you know that song, The Monster Mash, right? Where like the very next line after they sing the title of Monster Mash is that it's a graveyard smash. It's a graveyard smash today. It's a lot of digs, many of them involving the remains of people in an incredibly fascinating way. But it is it is a horror type show. So be aware of that going into it. You know, your mileage may vary with spooky things. And that's all the setup you need. So please sit back or do the monster mash. They did the mash. Do the graveyard smash, etc. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Jason, happy Halloween, happy horror time. I assume you uh, uh, wonderful comedy horror authors do something special at this season every year. I do nothing whatsoever, but I I do <laughs> enjoy it because, you know, normally people get annoyed when holiday decorations come out early, but here when they start putting out Halloween stuff around 
I don't know, August 15th, that is no problem for me. I am happy to have two and a half months of Halloween. I, I That's fine. This is my favorite time of year for obvious reasons. Yeah. I'm ready for it. This is actually, this, this is a story unrelated to what we're talking about today, but there's a house in my area that uh, some Halloween they put in a bunch of fake gravestones and also one zombie coming out of the ground. And I think they like can't get the zombie out of their yard because that's their year round. Uh, so every time Halloween stuff starts coming up, I'm like, oh, the zombie gets to have friends again. Good. Like The other stuff will be in the yard now. And see, I'm picturing <laughs> like, oh, 18 months from now, you talking to a police officer who's saying, so you thought it was a zombie? Why didn't you call someone? I, no, I thought it was just a Halloween decoration they left up year round. No, this person has been missing for three years. Right. <laughs> the reporters are like, an upbeat moron found the body, but nothing was done for a very long time. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, that's just fun. And uh, we've got a lot of ancient horrors here that are also uh, just exciting, I think, and uh, fun in their way, because it turns out there's so many archaeological discoveries that are scarier than any horror movie. What a thing. Archaeology is one of those jobs where it looks cool when you're a kid. When you just have, you know, the Indiana Jones movies to go by and you're thinking, well, I would like to travel around the world and, you know, hit foreigners with whips and things like that. Uh, <laughs> and then you, you get older and you go to college and at some point, you know, you maybe you meet somebody studying it and realize it's actually very tedious and a lot of long hours in the sun and dealing with bureaucracy and resolving arcane like disputes with other academics. And you decide that, oh, that, yeah, that would be a very boring job. The list of things we have today we're going to talk about prove that, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's awesome. I, I think that you fairly regularly run across <laughs> things that are clearly cursed and or haunted or both. And yeah, yeah it sounds like just a, a horrifying job that would, will follow you to your nightmares. It, re it really does flip that there's the one movie about an archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Oh, I'm sure there's more, but I don't know them. And then uh, from there, the real archaeologists are like, no, no, it's boring. And then this flips it right back. No, no, no. There are horrifying things they find all the time. Well, what was Brendan Fraser's job in the mummy movies? Was he an archaeologist or is he some sort of a mummy oh. hunter? I don't. I think he was like muscle for hire and Rachel Weiss was the, the scientist. And then Lara Croft is of Tomb Raider fame is an archaeologist. Oh, yeah. By the fact that she's either she's raiding tombs. I mean, I would assume that officially. Right. She has a Ph.D. in raiding or something. So it's all very uh, above board. Yeah, you're right. There are there are more than I re remembered. Yeah. But they're all very similar and they all, you know, kind of make it look like there's a lot of weapons involved and that part probably is not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't need guns to find the things we've got today. And uh maybe a good first one here to do is it's a statue of a seated Buddha. That is at least what they thought they had. This comes from a cracked article by Adam Weirs who people heard on the show recently. But he, uh, in 2015, there was a statue of a seated Buddha that came from China and it was on sale in a market in the Netherlands. And its Dutch buyer buys it and brings it to a statue restorer and says, please restore my statue. And the restorers come back and say, there was a body inside. Uh, what do you want to do with that? And it turns out there was a seated skeleton of a person in the same pose as the Buddha 
inside the statue of the Buddha. And here's one of several times we're going to say that if you can follow the footnotes and see the photo of where they did the scan on this life-size statue and found a skeleton inside, it is very much worth seeing. Yeah. Uh, but this otherwise, I think every job has, you know, sort of an urban legend that comes with the job. Like I think every garbage man probably tells the young guy about the time he heard someone got crushed in the truck when they went to crush the trash back there and there's a homeless man back there or something like that. Surely in the world of archaeology or in whoever was restoring this ancient statue, breaking open a human-sized statue and finding that a person had been encased in there, that has to be the equivalent of, of like where they tell the young new person, <laughs> you know, like, well, you know, every once in a while, they'll crack one of these open. There's a person in there. Yeah. I feel like it's like when uh, plumbers or sewer workers are like, you know, they flushed a baby alligator and one time it stayed alive in the sewer. Is that yeah. kind of thing? Only yeah. here it absolutely <laughs> happened. And I don't know what the process of discovery was in terms of appearing that the thing was hollow and then that, well, maybe it's not entirely hollow. And then, oh, there's something inside here. And they actually did a CT scan and then just sat there and watched on the monitor as it unveiled because in that moment of seeing the person in there, seeing the skeleton, it's like, okay, were they trapped while they were alive in there? Were they, was this a punishment or what? Like the story is the part that you don't get, but the actual story that they are pretty sure happened, also pretty alarming. Because so many things like this, you would think it's just some sort of unsolved murder. But in this case, so experts beyond the restorers did a CT scan and they found that, for one thing, the body had no organs in it, which, you know, sets off some alarms. Uh, but they also found that the body was seated on a bundle of cloth, and the cloth was covered in Chinese inscriptions. And this revealed, if the inscriptions are true, uh, you know, it's basically a note uh, explaining the body. And it said this was a Buddhist monk called Liu Quan, who uh, probably practiced something called self-mummification to prepare for life after death. And so uh, there's there was just sort of a note explaining what happened, which is uh, thoughtful. You know, you don't you don't want to just wonder. Yes. Self-mummification, which involves a process, involves eating a special diet and drinking a toxic tea to make your body so toxic that bugs will not eat it. Right. Famously picky While bugs, you're still uh, alive, away. you begin the process of turning yourself into a mummy so that you can be encased in a statue. Now, here, yeah. it's kind of the official stance of this podcast is that generally hauntings and ghosts do not exist. I think that we usually do not approach these things like, well, what if the ghost is real? In this case, yeah. I'm willing to say... If this statue is not haunted, I think that's pretty definitive scientific proof that there's just no such thing as haunting because they tried really hard to make <laughs> a haunted statue here. I feel like they used all right. techniques available to them at the time to make this be a haunted statue that so that whoever was in possession of it would be driven out of their home until they called a priest or whatever. If this thing has not cursed everyone who's touched it, then I'm fine saying, yeah, we gave it our best shot. <laughs> right. It's like a pretty, a pretty solid experimental structure for looking into it. Yeah. And it's also uh, in terms of how it would be haunted. 
this this practice of self mummification, as as we understand it, it's an ancient tradition in parts of present day Japan and China and Thailand. Uh, like, and uh, it seems like this monk probably did it voluntarily. Also, uh, their body was probably revered for at least some decades, if not a century or two, before it was then put in a statue, which is all to say this is, this is a relatively, uh, it seems like, positive situation and a thing the person actually wanted to do. Like, it would probably be a friendly, not upset ghost if there was a ghost, but we uh, haven't come across one. That doesn't make it any less creepy to discover the, the corpse in there. I fully realize that yes. to future generations that our burial practices will probably also seem weird. I get that, that there are cultural differences a- at play. Still, probably a haunted statue. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's all the things you would try to do if there was a way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's at a level of creepiness well, it, where if it's not haunted, it really might as well be. Like, it's academic at this point. <laughs> right. Why debate who haunted who? You know, it's just, it's got to be. Yeah. So that's our first story here. And uh, we've got many, many more things here of a, of a range of causes and reasons. I feel like this is almost a two-hander of all these crazy discoveries and then exploring how uh, it could have happened, you know? And uh, the next one here, uh, we we think we know both. It is the Aztec Shrieking Death Whistles. And this is from an article by Adam Weirs and Ivan Farkas. Yeah, so this was a case where they found a skeleton from while excavating an Aztec temple that was clutching a strange skull-shaped whistle in each hand, almost as if... Yeah. Having blown these whistles, something was summoned that killed this person. But I know the archaeologists do not think that way. <laughs> so apparently the whistles were archived. And 15 years later, someone thought, you know what? If blowing this thing summons Cthulhu, let's just, let's just do it. Let's, this is clearly going yeah. to summon something. Let's just find out what it is. And they blew the whistle, and we have a recording of the sound it made. Yeah, and this is uh, we. This is the one multimedia part of the show today in terms of audio. Be forewarned, listener. It's about twenty seconds long. It is pretty spooky. Keep driving safely if you are, and it's uh, going to be very spooky. And let's, uh, wonderful engineer Jordan. Let's go ahead and hear the Aztec death whistle being demonstrated by a present day person. So this is the dead whistle. Okay, and so so you, if you want to go check the footnotes of the episode, uh, you can watch the video that we pulled that audio from. It's a man pretty calmly blowing on it, like it's a clarinet or something. But it is uh, generating this insane sound that probably spooked you, even with my warning. So I joked about that this clearly was intended to summon either whether it's an angry spirit or some sort of demigod, one or the other. The other theories that actual experts have is that this is, and of course (laughs) this is much less scary than mine, was that either they played this while doing their human sacrifices so that it was the last thing the person heard, I guess, while being sacrificed, or they blew these while going into war and had many of them, and this is what their enemies heard coming over the hill. 
So see, where I thought it was something spooky, once you know the truth, it of course is very boring and ordinary. <laughs> Especially with the, the dark discoveries, that almost feels like it's an archaeologist's job, right? Just look at a thing and don't think of the most creative, interesting reason. Like, think of the most boring workaday reason they could have done this uh, nutty thing. Yeah. Now, I will say, I'm not trying to doubt how other people do their jobs. Because I'm not super great at my job. Oh, if you are an archaeologist and you bring up an artifact that has, I'm going to say, not scientifically, like a 94% chance of summoning some kind of evil spirit. I feel yes. like you should have <laughs> asked the rest of us if we wanted it to be blown. <laughs> you know, before you, and especially, and I'm picturing... The site where they found this person dead, clutching two of these whistles, one in each hand, and imagining that person just surrounded by shattered corpses with like their skulls having exploded and them saying, oh, I wonder what ceremonial purpose this skull shaped whistle served and like a giant right. footprint nearby the size of a house where some some ancient monster had arisen. <laughs> I wonder what, I wonder what right, arose right. out of that nearby volcano after he blew this. Let's find out everyone. Pe people right. of earth. Just a, a very upbeat moron. Like, ah, this curious flute, man. I, I would be completely unsurprised if, the, if these sites were full of incredibly uh, obvious signs of monsters. And then the people were just like, I don't know. I love digging. Why don't I find out what it does? It's really now, great. People think that we are exaggerating the, <laughs> monster stuff this next one is just great this one is also i feel like it's extra remarkable because it is archaeologists digging up evidence of past people believing strongly in monsters like these things happened because the past thinks like like we do as fun people uh, where we're like 94 percent chance of a monster in that situation because these are a set of both zombie and vampire burials which as a as a rational person, I believe we're regular people suspected of being zombies and vampires. But it means that if you're someone digging up like Middle Ages Europe sites, uh, you're going to find a lot of this stuff all the time. And one of them, when we say zombie, uh, Middle Ages Europeans, they were not really afraid of zombies, especially because, as I understand it, that that uh, sprang from Haitian traditions more. This is uh, something called a revenant, which is it's less of like a bunch of accountants shambling through a mall undead. You know, it's more of one person coming back from death because of the specific way they died in a very, very spooky way. And so then the people who buried these people expecting them to be revenants did a bunch of really elaborate things to prevent them from eating the living. One dig here is in Kiltyasheen, Ireland. It's from the 700 CE. And uh, it's the grave of two men buried side by side with large black stones shoved into their mouths. And the two men were also moved from different locations and put together on purpose. So this old Irish community must have figured, we think we have two revenant types. Let's stick them in one spot. So if hands start coming out of the ground, you know, we, we only have to watch the one spot. It's easier. And it was a form of burial called deviant burial uh, that was most often done to the following categories of people, rapists murderers, victims of murderers, whoa, twist, and also people who died from unexplained diseases. 
all of those kinds of people, rapists, murderers, victims of the murderers, and people who died from weird diseases, those were the people that Middle Ages or medieval Irish people most expected to come back as uh, kind of old-timey zombies. Yeah, and this is another one we do have a photograph of, and it's it looks like the skull has been caved in. Now, that may have just been done by time, yeah. but I'm going to imagine it was not because the skull has just been shattered and then it's between its teeth and its jaws. Someone has wedged a stone in there. Like this thing is not coming. Yeah, big a one. big one. And it's so you have this skull that's been had its head caved in and then someone has shoved a stone in its mouth. It's like you're not coming back. Or if you do, you're not eating us or at least it's going to take you long enough to get that stone out of your mouth that we will be able to run away but this is from an era when the corpse coming back to life was a plausible thing that could happen (laughs) and so you had to prepare for it (laughs) It, it, and actually take steps and there it only gets more elaborate from here and the so-called experts are going to tell us that the corpses actually couldn't come back to life and this was just the beliefs of the people but I feel that's just part of the cover-up, you know? This was definitely going They on. didn't come back to life because they did it properly. <laughs> right. It's like bringing an umbrella. Yeah, yeah. you can't be. You uh, can't take the anti-vaxxer <laughs> stance and say, oh, you know, it's, <laughs> what diseases would we really have if we, had, if we got rid of them? It's like, no, the, the prevention is why we don't have to deal with it. We don't have zombies running around because they, <laughs> they took the steps. Because they were responsible, yeah. And because also then we have a couple different burials of alleged vampires, right? Because you, you don't want a vampire running around. And there's a dig in Bulgaria, very vampire-y sounding kind of country. And in the 1200 CE, there's a grave of a male in his mid-40s. The body is staked through the heart with a metal spike. Uh, so, you know, those spikes last. We still have it. And then the left leg has also been amputated and placed beside him in the grave. So one leg taken off, put beside him as definitely some sort of preventative measure. Another dig in Poland in the 1500 CE, so 300 years later, uh, they found the body was decapitated with the severed head placed between the legs, uh, which the experts believe is also a sign of an alleged vampire being, you know, buried in a responsible fashion to prevent a vampire attack. And we, up till now, have been saying, well, after the person died of natural causes, to make sure they didn't come back, they took these steps in burial. The guy who had yep. the stake through his heart, I don't think we know whether <laughs> or not he was alive when they put the stake through his heart. But the other thing right. is, <laughs> you'll notice that between these two times and places, there's something of a debate of how much you have to disable a corpse before it's not a threat anymore. Because one, they went with just severing one leg because it's like, well, you know, what's it going to do now? It's not going to run after you. But it seems like in the other case where they chopped off the head and then put it between the legs, they were going more by zombie rules where it's like, well, the brain is where it was what drives it. So you cut off the head. Whereas if you just chop off one leg, a zombie can absolutely still crawl after you you know, with one leg and two arms, that's still way too much for a zombie. And the debate kind of comes down to, is it being animated by some kind of magic or is its brain still operating its body? And that's a case where, you know, experts to this day probably still don't, don't fully know that. Yeah, this is, it's a really legitimately useful archeological find for figuring out like past people's canon, 
in terms of monsters, like what they would say on their their fandom wikia for zombies and vampires. Yeah, but no one could just go all the way and chop off all the limbs and the head because that's you only have limited time. You're not going to do it. You know, you're going to to go the fastest way possible because obviously everyone's trying to cut costs. You know, you got a lot of corpses <laughs> to do that day. Um, so everyone's doing like the bare minimum, but yeah, if there's some sort of sorcery at play, then that corpse doesn't need its head. And now you've got an entire corpse, arms and legs intact. It that just is headless, but it's coming after you. I would love to know what, right. whose folklore said what, or what past experience made them think, no, no, just the left leg. That's enough. It can't dig its way out of its grave yeah. with just, with just its arms. I do love that mindset of, on the one hand, dark magic is real. On the other hand, I'm busy. (laughs) You know, really great. Uh, (laughs) Like, (laughs) I got crops to sow. One leg off, he'll hop at me. I'll still be fine. Let's do it. (laughs) If he catches me on one leg, I deserve to become a zombie too. That's... Yes, precisely. So yeah, that's a whole uh, a whole look at, at the monsters of past cultures too. And then this uh, this next one here is less of an occult thing, more of a, a ritual thing, and I, I guess a practical thing. But this is from another article by Adam Weirs and Ivan Farkas, and uh, this is multiple pits full of nothing but severed hands. I'm just going to get you right to the idea here. There was an excavation at the former city of Avaris, Egypt, where archaeologists unearthed four different pits full of hands. No bodies, uh, just a bunch of adult male right hands. And this dig was in a 3,600-year-old palace of King Kayan of the Hyksos, which was a West Asian people uh, who once ruled that part of northern Egypt. And they had this ritual where they they had so many hands, they dug four separate pits, which I feel was probably frustrating from a dig perspective, because once you find one, you figure that's it. Like, then you keep getting surprised by all the successive ones. Yeah, and they believe these were trophies, right? That they the soldiers would lop off the hands and bring them back to prove that they had they're the hands of the their enemies. Yeah. So this was an era when basically everyone lived by serial killer rules where you collect a trophy <laughs> from, from your, your victim and that's just the way that's just the way they lived their lives. Sure. It reminds me of my favorite Bible story. <laughs> from the book of First Samuel, where it's a romantic story that those of you in the listenership who are familiar with the Bible already know what I'm about to say. Those of you unfamiliar with the Bible, buckle up, because King David <laughs> asked for, not prior to being King David, asked for the king's daughter's hand in marriage, King Saul. And Saul says, oh, you can have my daughter to purchase her, because that's how marriage worked back then. You must go out and bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, our enemies. You must obviously kill them, presumably. I don't know. Otherwise, getting them would be extremely difficult. Right. (laughs) And then, David, this is not presented in the Bible as like a shock story. It's like a sign that Saul was a psychopath. David hears this request, nods, and to show his love and devotion to the woman, comes back with 200 foreskins. Oh, yeah. Over-deliver. And the Bible notes that he and his men gathered before the king and counted out the foreskins one by one. <laughs> and thus, he won the hand of the, of the woman. And uh, nowhere in the Bible is this, is this presented as a weird story, and no one within the story 
thinks this is weird. There's no point at which they're counting out the foreskins and David just looks at one of his captains and is like, man, living back in Bible times is messed up. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they just do it like, oh yeah, it, this, like, this was fully expected. And so they just come back with their, I guess their pockets just stuffed with sticky human foreskins and the king, when seeing a big pile of severed foreskins, did not have to ask what they were. It, it, it knew them on sight and had them carefully count them out to make sure they weren't short. Would have been terrible if they had been like three short after they counted and then would have to go get right. like a few more. But I raised that point to say that finding a pit of severed <laughs> hands of all of these things among archaeologists, I'm going to guess uh, not that weird. It, 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 they probably this is the kind of thing because after you've got all these hands it's like well what are we going to do with them now it's, there's not much they don't have any meat on them so you just like just bury them just go just go you gotta go out and bury them somewhere yeah if, if anything the archaeologists from from what we've got here it seems like the archaeologists might have seen the pits and said ah yes that confirms what i expected because apparently in ancient egyptian art there are a lot of representations of this practice where soldiers would cut off the right hand of an enemy, present it to their leader, and then like ceremonially give the hand in exchange for uh, a little wreath of gold or some other trinket or something. Uh, so it was, uh, I guess, very common in this 3,600-year-old uh, Egyptian area place. So the archaeologists might have found the hands and been like, well, at least it's not something unexpected. You know, that's good. If we want to put the most logical and normal explanation on this, the problem was that back then it took months to travel anywhere and months for news to come back from anywhere, right? So if the king hired a bunch of soldiers yeah. who were professional soldiers to go attack somebody or destroy a village or fight a war, there was really no way to know they didn't just leave and go camping for a couple of weeks and just come back and say... Oh uh, yeah, we did it. It's uh, because it would take like <laughs> it would take like six months for the king to find out that you hadn't that you never actually fought the battle. It was really easy to get away with things back then. So they could just come back and collect their gold and it's like, oh yeah, it was great. They yeah, we we killed them all. And then obviously months later, the actual enemy would arrive and and conquer their kingdom. So they needed some kind of proof, and you couldn't exactly take photographs. So you had to come back right. with something. Uh, so it was either you either had to get them off the enemy or else you had to go find some strangers to chop off their hands so you could fake it. At least some of these, they're almost a product of lacking technology that would be useful. You know, like uh, the communication you describe for these hands and then even that Bible story of, of David racking up a couple hundred foreskins. Like, you know, if you've invented, say, currency, you can buy a gift for the guy's daughter. You know, there there's a few <laughs> like... You wouldn't necessarily do something different in a more advanced time, but I feel like technology and science and and reason and so on have helped us iron out a lot of these things. And to look at another uh, thing kind of like that, we have a story here. This is a dig at Sacred Ridge in Colorado, which is an ancient Native American settlement uh, consisting of 22 pit houses. And a, a pit house is a home that you build by digging a pit into the ground and then putting a roof over it. So you don't really need to do so much wall building and so on. It's a good idea. While cataloging finds there, researchers realized that there were an unusual amount of two-headed axes spattered in human blood. An unusual number. You know, you get a few anytime. 
but uh, uh, too many. And then they kept digging. They also found lots of, quote unquote, mutilated and processed human bodies. And eventually, uh, the totals here, they found that 33 people had been chopped into 15,000 tiny chunks and then just sort of scattered all over the site. The entire dig, they just kept finding horror in like, I'd say every inch of it. This is what a genocide looked like back then. Yes, and that's what they believed happened. Yeah. Yes, this was one ethnic group doing this to another. Now, the numbers I realize when hearing them in your earbuds can skim right over you, but each body had been chopped into 450 pieces, as if 30-plus people had basically been thrown into a giant blender. So here is where I get into the secret reason we're doing this episode and the secret premise, which is the past was just awful. And <laughs> yep. I, as longtime listeners know, for the new people out there, I have a unique form of optimism, of extreme optimism, that is based entirely around the idea that the past was miserable. It's not that the present is perfect or even good. It's that the present is spectacular when compared to the past. So I completely get that today we will do this kind of damage to people with bombs and that it's terrible. But with a bomb, there's a detachment to it and you can train a soldier to push a button and the bomb goes and blows someone up and it's very easy to kind of separate themselves and to convince themselves, well, this is for national security, blah, blah, blah. The amount of effort and work and hatred it would take to chop a person up into 450 pieces, tiny pieces, with a stone axe, an iron axe, whatever hand tool they had, and have a bunch of people doing that to 33 victims that these are just the ones they found, and then chop them up into teeny tiny human confetti and then burn them after taking trophies, that's an all-day project. That is an amount of effort and strain and rage that is almost impossible to comprehend. And we'll never know what that day looked like or sounded like or smelled like. So all we have are these little bits. But it helps to try for a few seconds to imagine that this was a world where this kind of thing just happened and happened enough that there was a good chance that when you died, it was going to be to something like this. The researchers say that they think it was genocidal because they were able to analyze the teeth and other like little fragments of the people this happened to and determine that the people it happened to were a different ethnic group than the people who lived at this site, Sacred Ridge. And exactly like you say, Jason, like there's no... There's just no moral system or way of of thinking about being a person today that lines up with this kind of action at all. It's a fully foreign, different world out in the past there. And we're really lucky to not be in it. That's that's the astonishing thing here. I'm going to leave it at that. Yes. (laughs) Let's look at another less brutal thing, because anything is less brutal. This is a a site where they found a Bronze Age settlement uh, about 3000 years old. 
in the Scottish Highlands. And the people were who were digging there found, you know, a, a few graves places. One of them is two curiously well-preserved skeletons. And uh, it was a major find for them because it was exciting to have a 3,000-year-old skeleton that was in pretty good shape. These skeletons were identified as a male and a female, but after more than 10 years of studying them, Professor of Biomedical Archaeology at the University of Manchester, Terry Brown, realized that certain pieces of these two skeletons didn't seem to quite fit within the skeleton's uh, makeup. And by pulling DNA samples, they discovered that the two skeletons were actually bodies pieced together from six different people. So these ancient people in the Scottish Highlands just sort of Frankenstein together two bodies. And that is very confusing. Why bother? Very weird. In the spirit of Halloween, I could make some kind of joke <laughs> about clearly they built a Frankenstein's monster, a pair of them, obviously a Frankenstein and yeah. a bride of Frankenstein's monster. And they went on a rampage and had to be put down and buried together. In reality, all that probably happened was they made a pair of Frankenstein's monsters and then they just died of natural causes years later and were peacefully buried here. There, there's no indication that they went on a rampage. Right. It is. Yeah, it is the exact dig you would find for the burial of a Frankenstein and a Frankenstein's bride from the Boris Karloff yeah, movie. They've yeah. They've been peacefully <laughs> laid to rest, you know. It, so I, I, there's no indication the experiment was not a success. So we don't want to disparage the practice here. Otherwise, if you, if you at home... <laughs> To be serious for a moment, the only other option for how this could happen is just the world's worst funeral director just having a horrible oh, day on the job <laughs> and is just suddenly awash in body parts, is just frantically trying to stick them together and can't remember which one came from which. It's like, oh yeah, here, here it is. And there's like a mismatched arm and leg there. I'm just picturing some sort of like Mr. Bean type segment where, yeah, where the yeah. ceremony's just falling all over just themselves, going wrong in a way that you would you can't even imagine. Yeah, because also we uh, the reason that they were able to find these skeletons so well preserved is apparently the bodies were submerged in a peat bog. Uh, if you remember a few weeks back when we had Andy Daly on, we were talking about foods being preserved in bogs for a long time and uh, bodies that apparently can happen too. What they probably did is try to mummify the human remains in the bog, but also while the bog would mummify remains, it also breaks down calcium. So what the experts think happened is these bodies were Frankenstein together, buried in the bog to be mummified, but then pulled back out to preserve the bones. Uh, so this was like a decades-long project that, again, makes no sense. Don't know why. Yeah, and we'll never know. Probably a Frankenstein and Frankenstein's bride. Makes the most sense. Now... Next thing here is a sort of similar project, and there are many things in this episode that it works totally well as audio. And also, if you want to go look at the food note to see the picture, super terrifying. You can get your fix of horror on. This is a situation where it was a group called the Chinchoro people in South America's Atacama Desert. And what they would do as a, a cultural practice is do a sort of theater of the dead, like a, a performance sort of thing. And they would do it by turning uh, dead bodies into puppets through many different processes that we'll get into. And they started appearing in the area around 5000 BC in, in the Atacama in South America. And that's exactly when these puppets start popping up in the archaeological record. 
I fully realize that there is an element of xenophobia or whatever you want to call it, like cultural ignorance. When I look at someone else's burial practices and say, oh, that's creepy, that's weird, because of course it wasn't creepy or weird to them, and everyone's burial practices are weird to someone else because they just thought of the bodies differently. That said, I refuse to believe they didn't know this was creepy. I, I'm sorry. If you go, and anyone who's <laughs> listening to this and you're offended by that or you think I'm being ignorant, please go look at the photos. You're the one who's being ignorant. These things have <laughs> like a shrieking death mask they've attached to them. I cannot picture in my head the culture that didn't see these and then immediately go to bed that night and imagine like this thing crawling across their bedroom floor to come to come get them. Either they did this to freak out the other tribes or or <laughs> this was a temporary fad or something, but I believe this is objectively creepy. I believe this is scientifically creepy. If we could build a device that measures creepiness, it would say this registers high on the creepiness level and that it is not merely a matter of opinion. Whether or not we are right about them finding it creepy, you will find it creepy when you look at it. And it was super not a fad because the Chinchoro did several styles of corpse puppets over the course of 3,000 years. Uh, any Anything that sticks around for 3,000 years has legs. You know what I mean? Like this, this was a big thing. One way they would do it was to disassemble the dead into a pile of bones and then use sticks and reeds to rebuild functioning limbs and fleshed out insides uh, with with dirt and animal hair and stuff packing that in. They would also do a version where they sliced the body open, replaced all the organs with dirt, and then it was more of a doll. They would also do something where they coated the body in mud and then left it in the sun to kind of create a, a cocoon of dried uh, packed mud around the body. This group of people was very, very, very into this practice. And that means if you're an archaeologist studying them, I think this is like all you dig up probably with all these things. It it really seems like going into archaeology is sort of like like, you know, you come across people where they say, I want to be a doctor. And you say, well, are you okay with like the the gore and the grossness of of a living human body? It seems like if you want to be an archaeologist at all, uh, but especially for these people, you need to be really ready for freaky corpses. That's part of the deal. One of the weird things about history is that we went so long without knowing basic things. Like civilization existed for a long time before anybody invented the wheel, which is unthinkable. And it's weird to think about how long we went not understanding what causes disease, not understanding that poor sanitation comes with disease and that sewage causes disease. The fact that those were relatively recent discoveries is mind-blowing because it means we function for tens of thousands of years and never noticing what now seems obvious. To me, these people should have noticed they were just constantly being haunted. And said, hey, I wonder if these constant hauntings are because we're turning these corpses into creepy puppets and then keeping them around in our homes. I wonder if that's not actually 
the source of our problem for over the course of 3,000 years. And they had all of these opportunities to stop doing it and chose not to. I also, I hope it was a super positive version where they were being so haunted by so many ghosts that it became a, the movie Hotel Transylvania sort of situation or the Adams Family. Like, all, like it's a community at that point, you know? That would be great. <laughs> sure. But also we know that it, it worked out. Yes, of course. Many thanks to Squarespace for their support of this show, The Cracked Podcast, and they are here for everybody, right? Maybe you're someone who loves the spooky kind of stuff that we're talking about today from the past, you know? Maybe you love uh, everything else that we get into on the show, pop culture and, and history and literature and science and everything else. Well, Squarespace is like that for people's website purposes. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Isn't that great? But what if I want to have the ability to customize just about everything about it with a few clicks? Guess what? You have that ability with Squarespace. You didn't even know. They also have an e-commerce functionality to help you sell anything. They have analytics to help you grow any kind of website by tracking who's coming in and when they're staying. There's things you can do with that. Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked. Offer code cracked. Folks, there is a new podcast coming out that I think is a, a wonderful thing, and I think you'll think so too. Because, hey, Robin Williams. What do you think of when you think of Robin Williams? There are all sorts of different roles and characters. I revisited Goodwill Hunting the other day. He's great in it. Did you, did you realize that, the world? I, I think you pretty much did, but it's worth remembering. And from that to Mork to Aladdin's genie to his stand-up and so much more, Robin Williams brought so many characters to life. And as much as we may remember those characters he did, we may not know the person all that well. Luckily, there is a podcast to help with that and give you an amazing experience. It's a show called Knowing Robin Williams. New York Times culture reporter Dave Itzkoff, who is a fantastic writer and Twitter follow, by the way, uh, he explains the fragmentation of one of America's most beloved and misunderstood entertainers. Itzkoff has researched Robin's life, work, and upbringing for his best-selling biography entitled Robin. And on his podcast, they will get into amazing things you never knew about this comedy legend. Also, you'll hear from comedians like Margaret Cho and Gilbert Gottfried, uh, who will share how Robin inspired them. Also, in-depth interviews with Chris Gethard, Rick Overton, and more people who can analyze Robin's jokes and discuss mental health in the comedy industry and give you all the other things you want for a full understanding of this titan of this medium we all love so much, comedy. So please listen for a moving portrait of an unforgettable entertainment icon. Just search for Knowing Colin Robin Williams on your favorite podcast app and start listening today. Next one here, and this is uh, another one where the, the visual is, I just find it very terrifying. And I, I don't mean to be xenophobic toward, toward the uh, folks who did it. But this is uh, from an article by Adam Weir's. And it is a cemetery where the archaeologists found all kinds of uh, bodies with deformed skulls and in a way where it looks like an alien shape. The first visual trope that jumps to mind for me is the alien skulls from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a beloved movie. But it is it is that sort of long head going backwards on a, an otherwise human looking skull. And to Draw a visual picture. Again, we've got the photo, but it, the skull has been elongated. Imagine a skull that's about four times as long going backward. 
as your skull, assuming, assuming you have a normal skull, so that it's almost shaped like like you described. It's it's on the way to being the xenomorph from the aliens movies. It looks like a weekly world news hoax. It, it looks like a bad Photoshop of alien skull discovered. And it's an example of why I would be a very bad archaeologist. Because if I ran across this and my boss, the foreman or whatever, and he's like, oh, no, that's probably some sort of ritual practice, I would be like, yeah, no, this is an alien the real explanation is weirder. Well, yeah, it's a, it was a dig in Sonora, which is in northwest Mexico, and they found 25 skulls like this. And it's the result of an ancient practice in that culture, which is known as cranial deformation, which uh, consists of taking very young children and binding the head using ropes and a wooden board. And so then the head develops in a shape that it otherwise wouldn't. And so you get these skulls that, to an archaeologist who has consumed a lot of pop culture, look uh, look like space aliens. Yes. So it was this extremely painful process that was done by the upper classes, right? It was a status thing? Yeah, that's that seems to be their best guess that it was it was some sort of thing where, you know, only the wealthy and powerful have the means to do this. Yeah, and then you can try to imagine what a living person with a skull like this looked like. And we're gonna just take a brief moment here to appreciate how arbitrary status symbols are. <laughs> through because you don't realize how arbitrary ours are until you compare it to another culture where they it's like we'll just give you a giant head looks like you got a giant brain or or something uh sounds crazy two things first of all i'm taping this show from inside my lime green bugatti (laughs) and second of all what do you mean ours are normal yeah, uh, so, <laughs> but if you if someone wants more on this type of thing, you can Google foot binding, another practice from yes. uh, China where it's the, extremely painful where young girls would have their feet bound because they had decided that having tiny little feet was a sign of being, it ultimately is a sign that you could afford to have foot binding done. That's how status symbols work. And then the photos yeah. of what their feet looked like. And it's, again, I don't want to say it's horrifying because, again, these are different cultures. I'm not trying to judge their culture. To my 2019 Western eyes, it's horrifying. The cranial deformation and the foot binding and stuff. They're these status symbols that are, like, skeletally visible. Like, we're, we're not even touching on, you know, ancient Romans vomiting to eat more food. Or, uh, or other crazy practices that, that were out there. So it's it's all yeah, over. And future archaeologists will find in the graves of our women these silicone orbs that have been buried with them <laughs> in the chest area. And they will, they will try yeah. to figure out what ceremonial significance. Well, they won't, they won't find my Bugatti. I'm going to burn it like a Viking ship when I go out. So too bad, archaeologists. You don't get that one. This next one here is, uh, it's really more of a product of nature. I feel, I feel like almost all of this has been people doing it to people. This is one where there were speleologists. So speleologists are doing the scientific study of caves. I, I don't even know if they were looking for human remains and human culture. I think they were just into caves. But they were exploring the Lama Lunga Cave Network, which is near Altamura in Italy. And so they were going through 
and they've found something that we will describe. This is an extremely exciting visual if you want to go look at it. It is sort of a cave wall with a lot of knobby, bumpy structures in it. And there's a human skull sort of screaming out of it. The unique thing about the human skull is, is that if the lower jaw is either missing or open, it always looks like it's screaming <laughs> yep. because the, the mouth is open and then obviously the eyes are wide and has an expression because we just register that as an expression. And so it absolutely looks like this person died being eaten by a cave. It has an expression on its face of a person who did not know that a cave could eat you until the cave was eating him. And the Altamura man is a Neanderthal who they believe stumbled into a sinkhole and ended up in the cave system, dies of starvation because they can't get out. And then the cave wall just sort of grew calcium concretions that look like it's kind of eating them in a, a really astonishing, terrifying way. Because when you look at it, it certainly looks like it happened suddenly. It looks like this person was had paused to lean against the cave and the cave just reached out and swallowed him. Not actually what happened, as far as we know. <laughs> right. But it is a striking it is a striking <laughs> image. Yeah, it really it reminds me of in the alien franchise if someone's getting like kind of sucked into a wall of alien goop or maybe or maybe the Borg I think do that when they're sort of mechanizing someone and they're just trapped in the side of it. It looks like that but in a in a cave in the world. It's yeah. amazing. And also the reality, the guy fell in a hole and just starved to death. Back then happened all the time. You you were out hunting. Oh, you yeah. fell into a sinkhole or, or fell into a cave and broke your ankle. You, you just you died. You starved to death or died of thirst, whatever whatever happened happened first. So the reality, not any more comforting than getting eaten by a cave. I would actually prefer to get eaten by a cave than to slowly starve to death because I lived in an era when I had no ability to contact people and they had no way to know where I went. The past was just awful. Yeah. I, I can't emphasize that enough. This one, not only is it sort of a product of nature and clumsiness, but it's it's a guy kind of doing it to himself. There's also a situation where the speleologists then brought in other researchers who handle this stuff, and they were able to leave the skeleton in place, but also carve off a tiny bit of the shoulder uh, to analyze it and look into it. And they found that Altamura man is the oldest Neanderthal that has ever been found by science. Uh, and he lived during the earliest phase of Neanderthal times, which was around 150,000 years ago. They've gone on to do a laser scan of the remains and try to recreate the person's body, which there is a hilarious picture of in the footnotes. I, I can't wait for you folks to see it. And they actually, when recreating the person, they didn't recreate him in the moment that he was being eaten by the cave. It was during, they gave him the expression <laughs> when it's clearly happier times. So that was, that was nice. They did not, they did not freeze him in a moment of panic or terror or whatever. So <laughs> they didn't do like a prehistoric banana peel. Uh, they slipping on. No, none of that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And so that's, that's uh, sort of lucky for science and astounding, honestly. There's also another uh, amazing archeological find here that was found in 1971 and it was the body of a Chinese noblewoman who died over 2,000 years ago, yet has the skin, flesh, and organs of a fairly fresh corpse. And there, there are truly terrifying pictures of this body uh, in the footnotes. It's from an article by Adam Weirs. 
And this body was so freshly preserved despite being over 2,000 years old, the doctors were able to perform an autopsy on it in 1972. So what you have here is a corpse that kind of looks like it was fished out of a river. And it's very pale. There are parts of it that are kind of seem like it's melted or degraded. The hair is still perfectly intact. The eyes look like they've been sewn shut. The mouth is not frozen in the act of screaming. The mouth is frozen in the act of laughing in our faces. It is one of the most alarming things I've ever seen. (laughs) From a scientific point of view, it is an amazing find. Uh, It is something that is a series of circumstances allowed the body to not rot as it would normally if just in just a matter of weeks or months. This is incredibly well-preserved. The skin, everything's still there. It is also the most alarming thing you will see this week, Uh, mainly because when you see it, you can somehow kind of smell it through the photo. I don't know how that works. Yeah, it's sort of uncanny valley is not quite the right thing to call it, but it's almost too preserved. Like it's it's uh, scarier that way. It's it's really it looks like a bad corpse dummy someone made possibly or something yeah, that is yeah. serial killer made out of the skin of a victim that they stuffed with just just crap they had around the house. It looks wrong in a lot of ways because there's not normally such a thing as a body this old that's in this shape. It's just not a thing that happens. It's just got a weird waxy appearance it's really awful you're right it's like it's a spooky thing to look at and also a a rosetta stone type discovery where we just didn't know we could even find something like that the burial preservation was extremely elaborate the tomb was 12 meters underground which is a lot of feet uh, u.s folks the casket was placed like russian doll style inside seven other caskets and then that was in yet another burial vault so it was caskets and vaults all the way down Then the body was wrapped in 20 layers of silk. Then the body was suspended in a magnesium-infused acid bath. And I don't really understand what that does, but apparently it prevents corpse-eating bacteria uh, from being able to breathe while trying to eat the body. So nothing could do it. And this amazing find is still being studied to learn about ancient methods of corpse preservation. It's like a truly remarkable uh, archaeological achievement that they found this. Yeah, and and of course, we can never know the exact circumstances. All they know is that it was surrounded by just many, many signs saying, do not open the corpse chamber, do not... And there was like these etchings on the wall of like a figure rising from a hole. And it was like the etching kind of looked like Donald sure, Donald sure. Trump somehow. It was just weird, like a weird coincidence. <laughs> but And if only we could know what those etchings mean. Yeah, you know? it, I mean, it's ancient. Like who knows what ancient superstition <laughs> they thought would happen if we... <laughs> I want those exact things, just cartoony warnings around all these things. But anyway, we've got a a few things here that are sort of astonishing, terrifying artifacts. This next one is very Necronomicon book sort of artifact, but it just exists because it turns out throughout a lot of eras in history, people were way into making books that were bound in human skin, which is not the material I turned to. Jason, you're a published author. Ever considered it? Well, when you say considered it. (laughs) Yes. There are practical limitations at play here, but the Ah, reality is... The publisher said no. (laughs) That 
there's a cost <laughs> issue. The reality is that yeah, yeah. to an academic, if you said, you know, there's a legend of a book that is bound in human skin, the expert will reply, which one? Because right. <laughs> this was common. It's so common. There's a term for it that I don't know how to pronounce. Do you? I'm going to take a run at it as anthropodermic bibliopegy. Yeah. Or pegy. It's in the footnotes there. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's binding a book in the skin of a human because that's the material you've chosen. Yes. And a practice that went on for a few centuries, not thousands of years ago. <laughs> But very recently, <laughs> nope. in in our great great grandparents' time, when America was around, they were people out there taking skin off of corpses, hopefully corpses, and binding their book in it. One disappointing thing yeah. that happens is many times when they come across a book that professes to be bound in human skin, they will find that it is merely sheepskin or whatever because there was such a market for books bound in human skin that right. less scrupulous human skin book dealers would dishonestly bind a book in mere animal skin and sell it for the price ah, of a human-bound book. Because otherwise, you know, they certainly could not meet the demand of the buyers who wanted a book on their shelf that had been bound in human skin. When Jason said that this is from our great-great-grandparents' time, he's right. I wish there were more greats on the front of grandparents in that statement, but there aren't. It's it's accurate. There's a, one story here of Harvard University's Houghton Library uh, which is their main repository for rare books and manuscripts. They look closer at a book they had from the mid-1880s, which is more than a century ago, but not much more than that. And they found it was bound in human skin. Then they kept looking and found a couple other books that were this practice Jason just described, where they thought it was human skin, it's just sheepskin. And there's a thing called the Anthropodermic Book Project that has identified 47 books worldwide bound in human skin. That's just the ones they think they know about. Also, when uh, submitting uh, these to testing, they tested 30 of them and found only 18 were the real deal of human skin. The others were this clever publisher scam of it being from animals. Yeah. And as for what these books were about, I would like to think they were just manuals on how to roof your house or something like that. Like there was, there weren't even <laughs> like books of spells or anything. They're like romance novels. It's just something that had, had nothing right. to do with it. it. Just also bound. Get the limited bound in human skin edition. We're only we're only making a hundred of these. Uh, <laughs> right. If you're the first one at my book signing in Detroit or whatever city, you get the <laughs> the human skin. Yeah, one. it's just like some collection of Charles Dickens stories or something. It's just. Oh, it's a copy of The Christmas Carol, bound in human skin. I feel like also with all these terrifying digs that, that find bodies and so on, it's remarkable that they're probably the tip of the iceberg. Like many of these practices happen many places all over the world, and that's just what we've found. And the books are that way too. It is, as you said, an expert would be like, which human skin book are you referring to? There are so many. Of all of the many, many, many other books who are bound in human skin... We don't know about them 
because their owners simply have them on their shelf oh, and yeah. don't know that this particular leather-bound book is the skin of a person who died. They don't know. It's just on their shelf. Who is in their library looking at their rack of leather-bound books from 1843 thinking, I wonder if any of those are made of people. Right. <laughs> but guess what? Some of them are. And then uh, this is another astonishing artifact that is was probably even more common, if I had to guess. This is from an article by Marina Ryman, and uh, this artifact is called a witch bottle. And a witch bottle is a, a sort of totem or protective item that is a bottle. Okay, makes sense so far. But they were usually made around the 17th century, and they would be full of pins, nails, lint, fingernail clippings, hair, and uh, often the person's own pee in hopes that uh, all of these sort of stray items would join together in the bottle and form a, a sort of protective shield against witchcraft, that, uh, that very common problem that's very real. Clearly someone, a priest or their local anti-witch expert, maybe someone they paid to do an anti-witch spell, because this bottle is doesn't look homemade. It's got like a face on it and a scowl on it. It's a ceremonial bottle that they probably bought and that person told them, if you want to be safe from the witchcraft, you need to fill this with your wife's urine, some of your fingernails, and several other objects. And I think the logical question would be, how did they arrive at this method for deciding this is the thing that keeps the witches away? A method that meant something in this time and place, but that has been long lost and probably did not exist before that. Was this a single priest just pranking everyone? And there is a fascinating yeah. answer to that. There is a lot of study about rituals, how rituals work, why we have rituals with Catholicism and the beads and the rosary and all those things. And why rituals in order to work have to be complicated and kind of a pain in the ass yeah. to do. For example, why couldn't this priest or whoever advised them to do the bottle thing is just said, oh yeah, all you gotta do is uh, draw an X in the dirt by your door and you're safe. The ritual in order for the placebo effect to work had to be kind of a pain in the ass. And there probably was a procedure for getting this. You didn't just dump it in there. It had to be added and there's probably, I don't know, a prayer or something said over it. Do the people inventing right. the rituals know that? Do they instinctively know it? Is it just a thing that occurs naturally? Many books could be written on the subject because that's, if you understand that, you start to understand a lot of things about the culture because we have rituals today that we follow that we don't even think about. And it seems like this one in particular is maybe an example of one traveling like a fad or traveling in a, not the internet sense of a meme, but it is a meme going through the culture. It's a thing being spread repetitively. A lot of the witch bottle finds we have are from England. Like one of them that they found in Greenwich uh, was found to contain human urine, brimstone, 12 iron nails, eight brass pins, hair, possible navel fluff. Is something described here? I didn't even know that's a thing. Uh, also, a piece of heart-shaped leather pierced by a bent nail and 10 fingernail clippings. So extremely specific, like even numbered counting and gathering of things and crafting of things. Uh, and as you mentioned, these bottles often have faces carved on them or very intricate. 
things done to them. And so it seems like somebody in the uh, the 1600s in England, either a group or even just one person kind of got this going around uh, around the culture there. And then people were were crafting this ritual that, that, as you say, needed to be complicated and specific. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like a thing. And if it doesn't work, well, it just means you did it wrong. Whereas if he, if he had just told you, you just draw an X on the dirt, then it's hard to screw that up. But it's here, it's, it puts the onus on you to do the ritual right. And if you see somebody who did it and their baby is healthy, it's like, hey, don't risk it. And rituals can persist for thousands of years based on nothing, nothing but that. Also, let me give credit to the expert yeah. who can open up a container from 400 years ago and pour out the contents and see a bit of something and say, oh, that's uh, that's fluff from a belly button, from a navel. Once you train as a fluffologist, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Uh, as classes, we have to see thousands and thousands of navels. We've got a few more things here. I think also we're a little tight on time, but they're they're in general a series of as we were saying, like the past being just utterly foreign to us in terms of what people uh, believed in their values and what they found acceptable. One of them here is the scene of a mass cannibal attack in prehistory. It was a cave system in northwest Spain called El Cidron. It was studied in 1994, and they discovered the remains of 12 Neanderthals. Uh, They had all died at the same time, And the scientists are pretty confident that these 12 Neanderthals were hunted for food by other Neanderthals. That is just what almost definitely happened. There was a lot of splitting open of skulls and things that indicates uh, humans ate the humans. And I guess this is a thing that people studying Neanderthals probably find often because there was there was a very different value system 100,000 years ago. Uh, It just was a thing. In the grand scheme of things, in the grand, the, the, the age of the earth and the age of the species, this era when one of the ways you could die is just a gang of cannibals could come eat you and your entire family. Not that long ago. Not, this is not millions of years ago. I'm seeing that I misread our notes here. It was 50,000 years ago. This, this event happened. So uh, closer. Yeah. We have trash we're producing in our landfills that will not decompose for 50,000 years. There's also there's an extra gory detail where the scientists say that they cannot find evidence of a fire being made in this place at this time. And so that almost definitely means that the people were eaten raw by the other people, which is just an unbelievably animal alien behavior to us as people. But it was 50,000 years ago. Happened. Yeah. There's another thing here. This is called the the prehistoric plague house. Uh, There was excavation of a, a prehistoric Chinese village at Hamin Manga that uh, they found ruins of over 20 circular single-room houses. Uh, So over 20 houses, sort of a yurt-type single-room. And in the vast majority of the houses, uh, you know, they found just old pieces of pottery and old house stuff. And then one house, all of a sudden, they found 97 bodies. And so the picture here in the food notes, it's just piles and piles and piles of bones all on top of each other. And they are pretty sure that what happened is a plague hit the village here, And so the village just kind of tried to put everybody into a house uh, instead of digging. They were just like, we'll use this structure as a place to put it. I feel like it's almost a story of a pretty normal sounding to us behavior by the people in the past. But it just means that if you're an archaeologist, like you could be excavating an entire village and just suddenly out of nowhere, one house is crazy. 
You know, like that's a that's a very strange thing for their work as professionals. And that back in those days, it was a fact of everyday life that one of the houses contained a hundred dead bodies of your loved ones and friends who had died of a plague. Back then, they would have had no context for understanding what causes the plague or how to prevent it or how to cure it or anything. You are just at the mercy of whatever invisible thing is making people sick and killing them. And all you can do is just put them together and maybe burn the corpses or do whatever you can to keep them away from everyone else and hope that it passes. Because while this was, they were doing their best here, this was their best that they knew to try to fix the situation or manage it. But that still does not really grasp the terror of an everyday person living there and going through this and not understanding what's going on and having no idea if it's going to be you next or your children or your wife or your family. And you are just waiting to see if they start to show symptoms because aside from whatever rituals they had, you're kind of just at the mercy of whatever this was. Yeah, especially the the more dangerous and the more scary uh, the past was, it seems like that increases more and more your desire for the rituals, like the witch bottle or this just attempt to deal with the plague going through the village. The last thing here, I just want to summarize in a brief way, because as we were prepping an episode of what are discoveries archaeologists make that are scarier than any horror movie, we had kind of borderline too many examples of human sacrifice. You, if you want to look through the footnotes, there's articles by Elorm Datumi and Adam Weirs and S. McClellan Crosby and Ivan Farkas and more writers where it seems like the the practice of archaeology is just a constant process of discovering past Temple of Doom type sites. That's just all of the time happening in this profession. And uh, we don't think of them that way. I think I think we post Indiana Jones, we're told, no, 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 think of them as just people who find pottery shards. Like, that's all they do. It's very boring. Don't think about it at all. But the past in many cultures across many parts of the world did these practices that we consider brutal because they wanted the control. They wanted to be in charge. Yes. And you found corpses sacrificed in that had their chests ripped open and their hearts taken out. You find corpses chopped into bits. You find rituals where they thought they were feeding these corpses, these sacrifices to their gods. You will find where they had sacrificed children so that some structure or temple they built would be strong and remain upstanding. And this is one of mankind's oldest traditions, where if you are helpless to the elements and to weather and to rain and the harvest and the laws of physics and things you don't understand, you start to project and you start to imagine that they are invisible forces making demands of you. And then when things go wrong, it's because you've angered them and you start to assign such a cruel personality to those forces. These guys are so cruel and so bloodthirsty that rather than have this building collapse and kill us later as a sign of the God's displeasure, let's go ahead and kill several of our children to appease the God's bloodlust and then maybe we'll be spared later. And that belief was pervasive around the globe in many different cultures and many different places where many different people all came to the same conclusion about the nature of the gods. Yeah, 
one through line maybe to this whole episode is that uh, often when history is talked about or archaeology is talked about, I feel like we tend to focus on groups and civilizations that that seem to have built things up. Like we'll be like, ah, look at all those aqueducts and structures the Romans built. Very exciting, very upstanding. And there's not as much focus on the uh, real life horror show that that happened in many other places and situations all the time. It's it's a dark thing, but it's also fascinating to know about. And, and I, I feel like it kind of broadens and uh, improves my understanding of what human life used and to be. And especially when you realize how many of these people were born into a power structure where they were helpless, where they decided your only role in the society is to be placed on an altar and be cut open to feed the gods so that the gods will not starve the rest of us this winter. And that you find in these cases, there's no sign of struggle that the victims often accepted. This was their fate. And for many, many, many people in the past, this was their life. And that's worth remembering because it is, there's shock value in it. It's weird. It's creepy. But also when we talk about the past, we tend to talk about Kings and great warriors and prominent names that come up and it's easy to forget all of the many, many regular people who just served as farmers or soldiers or the people who would just die in their twenties from some disease or whatever, or would be sacrificed and would just be forgotten. But these were most people. These were the people that were most of civilization. These regular people who were just trying to get by and had just no idea what was going on uh, and died not knowing why they died and died not knowing why the people in charge decided that it had to be this way. There's certainly something to be learned from it. Yeah, if anything, the the Game of Thrones and historical period type shows, I feel like they they are nailing the brutality part uh, in terms of indicating it, and they also tend to underserve the regular person stories. Like that, that I feel like that became a pretty common thing of people thinking about Game of Thrones, where they thought, like, do any of the people in the cities want to be in this war that the sexy lords are doing? Like, we're real focused on the sexy lords having sex. But uh, maybe the peasants are like not on board to be Lannister troops, you know, who knows? Yeah. And the books, too. And because this is now a Game of Thrones episode, <laughs> yeah, the, the, <laughs> that's the, the goal. books yeah. do a much better job of getting into that, about the, the way that the average people were starving because this war was just ravaging oh. the, the landscape. The show, not so much interested in that. But we we can come back with part two of this episode about Game of Thrones season eight and where it went, <laughs> and where it went wrong, uh, because someday in the future, archaeologists will find our copies of Game of Thrones season eight and they will look back and say. <laughs> and they and they will try to piece it together based on what they knew of our culture and it will be they will probably will not find their answer. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to my pal Jason Pargin for having a good old-fashioned good time with me exploring some terrifying old-fashioned graves, corpses, entire societies, etc. Because, boy, the past was brutal, and that is just an astonishing thing to know. It also makes me value progress that has been positive for people. You know, that's a that's a good thing when it's positive for people. It isn't always, but it can be, and that's good. And in our food notes, you will find something else good, especially if you love 
horror because you know this is your season the end of October or anytime if you're if you're a year-round Halloween kind of type either way we are loaded with food notes this episode from crack.com this was really really cracked article heavy in particular we want to thank a couple writers Ivan Farkas is one and another is Adam Weirs who you heard uh, a few weeks ago on our British Empire based uh, historical episode of the show taped in England he also knows a ton about this stuff so he's very multi-talented and wide-ranging Those food notes include pictures of the monk skeleton inside the Buddha statue, video of the person demonstrating the Aztec death whistle uh, that y'all heard and probably remember very well. So there's all kinds of things like that to enrich your experience of this terrifying, brutal past. And one more thing, just because we can, there's a couple extra footnotes I threw in. One of them is one of my favorite comedy characters. Uh, I mentioned Andy Daly, who was on the show a few weeks back. He does this show called the Andy Daly Podcast Pilot Project, and I'm almost definitely sure I said those words in the right order. It's a really fantastic comedy show, and one of my favorite characters from it is a guy named Dalton Wilcox. Uh, Dalton Wilcox is a cowboy poet of the West. But also he is a monster hunter and will uh, go after, you know, vampires and uh, what he calls Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's and other other, you know, terrifying spooks. But there's a a very funny joke about uh, that built into it. And I won't spoil it for you, but there is a link to the Andy Daly podcast pilot project featuring his character Dalton Wilcox, cowboy poet laureate of the West. And of course, we are also footnoting the many horror, comedy, and otherwise books of Jason Pargin, the amazing best-selling author that we have on the show, who uh, writes for the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. Uh, you may or may not know there is a 10th anniversary of Jason's book, John Dies at the End, is the title. Uh, you know it. You're a fan. And that 10th anniversary edition is coming out in January. Uh, so that's soon because of how the calendar works. This uh, edition has a new 10 years later afterward from the characters as well as from Jason. Also a great new cover. It's going to look very nice on your shelf, uh, which I hope you are removing the human skin books from to make room for this, right? Or or just remove regular books, whatever you got. Anyway, pre-order links are in the food notes and uh, check it out. Support support Jason's amazing writing because you'll be glad you did. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated this show, please let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where Halloween is pretty fun. There's like a couple people who wore something they shouldn't have worn, you know, and then we, and then we all say so. The rest of it is a lot of just seeing your friends being fun. Uh, it's one of the more positive reasons we had this darn social media thing in the first place. My own social media thing Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitztagram. I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff, tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. Bye.